The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond. Welcome to episode 6 of the Humanitarian Hub podcast recorded here at SOAS Radio. We are releasing this podcast alongside the Humanitarian Hub blog in order to highlight the debates, research and current issues surrounding humanitarian work globally. Hopefully we will be able to provide you with an insight into the topics that will be discussed and covered in SOAS's new MSc Humanitarian Action, which is a two-year online master's beginning in October 2019. Last week, Jake spoke with Ellen Goodwin about her PhD research on the potentials of promoting local interreligious cooperation to build resilience in fragile contexts. If you want to hear about the growing prominence of religion in humanitarian and development work, do have a listen back to Ellen's episode, and there are other episodes available with students, academics, and practitioners alike. This week, Tabor Ahmed is joined by Dr. Natalie Roberts via Skype from Goma in the Democratic Republic. Republic of Congo. Dr. Natalie is a former SOAS alumnus on the Violence, Conflict and Development Master's program, and she is currently an emergency doctor with MSF. She has a wealth of experience in multiple conflict-affected states, including Syria, Yemen, and the DRC. In this discussion, Natalie highlights a number of prevalent themes in humanitarianism, shedding light on the ongoing Ebola epidemic that the DRC is currently grappling with. Throughout this discussion, Natalie will draw on her experience as a medical doctor, particularly honing in on some of the humanitarian and developmental challenges she and her MSF team are hands-on tackling at the forefront and on the ground. She is also a regular contributor for the blog series Doctors Without Orders and has previously conducted her own podcast series. All links will be attached below the podcast if you're interested in some of the other work that Dr. Natalie has been involved with. Hi Natalie, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your current position with MSF? Yeah, so as you well explained in your introduction, so I'm a, I'm a medical doctor's background. Um, I worked as a doctor in the UK for quite a few years before deciding to join MSF. Then deployed with MSF for, I think, three years back to back in the in the field in all sorts of emergencies all over the world. Particularly in conflict zones, I found myself getting sent to, to many conflict zones, including Syria, Yemen and Central African Republic. And then at that point, after three years, I decided it was time to try and understand a bit more what was happening in those conflict zones why were they like that what what was what was my role within everything that was going on so that that's why I decided to study at SOAS and I selected the VCD uh, master's program at SOAS and spent a year there before returning back to MSF and since then I've been what we call a sort of head of emergency programs at MSF in France in Paris um, which means that essentially I manage the the emergency teams that are operating around the fields and in the sort of real crises um, so the things that happen acutely um, and so that would be the the, the nutritional crisis that happened in northeast Nigeria, for example, with the conflict ongoing between the military and Boko Haram. We did a lot with that. Uh, conflicts, a lot of epidemics 
And for a year now, we've been involved with the Ebola epidemic in the east of Congo, which is an area I know quite well because the east of Congo has chronic conflict, chronic violence, and recurrent emergencies. So I've been here many times for all sorts of emergencies. And, and in the last year, I've been coming back and forth because of the Ebola epidemic that's happening. So as head of emergencies with MSF, like you mentioned, you've worked in multiple conflict zone areas, I mean, including the eastern Congo. What would you say are some of the key humanitarian and developmental challenges you've experienced? I think really what, what I've noticed and what I came to realise and one of the reasons I came to study at SOAS in the first place was that these places are not, they're often defined by the fact that they're a conflict zone and people seem to think that there's going to be sort of active conflict happening in front of your eyes, that you're going to sort of see soldiers lined up as if you would, you know, as all the images of the First World War, the Second World War. And actually what I realise when you come to these places is that they are often in chronic conflict and, and in fact the conflict and violence are not necessarily the same thing they're often linked but often you end up in these areas realizing that the population you, you might come because it's a conflict zone and particularly being a doctor and being a medical doctor and, and working for a medical organization i think one of the main challenges is, is trying to make people who are who are going there understand that it's not uh the priority necessarily is not to treat the war wounded cases that often you may never see someone who's war wounded who's injured from the conflict what you see is all the um, the results of the conflict what you see is all the, the side effects of conflict the fact you get population displacement the fact that people no longer have access to healthcare, the fact that children aren't being vaccinated anymore so you get outbreaks epidemics, the, the fact that in any sort of conflict or violent violent prone area that you see to, you see huge amounts of inequality amongst the population you always see somebody who's benefiting and you see that the majority of the population are extremely poor or, or are completely deprived from from certain resources and i think one of the the key challenges i've experienced is working from an emergency organization is this idea that we could just arrive and give a quick fix that we're medical doctors and we're going to deploy and fix all the problems that we see because there's suddenly an emergency in this area and actually we arrive and find that the problems are standing they're related to conflict and violence but the conflict and violence is related to all sorts of political factors it's related to all sorts of international geopolitics it's related to long-standing divisions between communities it's related to corruption and that in fact when we're arriving um, one of the main challenges is trying to understand well what can we actually achieve here are we just doing something that's completely futile and who is the person that's most vulnerable and the people that are most vulnerable and what do they need from us and that's when you arrive the first few days you don't understand that and it takes quite a while to really understand and to make a judgment on that and I, I learned a lot of that in Syria actually um, where Syria was a very rich country beforehand in, in comparison to many it had a very developed society it had shopping malls much like um, you know you would see in somewhere like Dubai and in a very short period of time um, you saw all these divisions between the community you saw all these inequalities starting to happen and I got sent to Syria to open you know hospitals to treat wounded people and then I found myself kind of completely helpless around the fact that people were no longer having access to dialysis that children weren't being vaccinated anymore that healthcare was almost being used like a tool and I think all of this is kind of you know this there's no, there's no real division between humanitarianism and development at that point of time. And I think what you have to do is just forget about all your all you've learned about theories of things and just try and understand 
in the community that you're working, who are the most vulnerable people and what do they need you to do? And, and that's the main challenge is to try and get that understanding. Uh, I mean, going back to the outbreak of Ebola in the eastern Congo has added an additional weight to an already politically unstable and military charged environment. How do organisations like MSF manage to operate and navigate in such environments? I mean, from previous discussions we've had, you've mentioned that there's over 100 documented armed groups in the area um, and also the fact that, you know, there's a bit of public mistrust too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the Eastern Congo is almost a sort of classic case study for um, for all the challenges that could happen and probably the worst place in the world to have an Ebola epidemic. Um, I mean, it was almost something that we discussed before, almost slightly flippantly of going, well, the only thing that could really happen that'd be worse in North Kivu's day is to have an outbreak of Ebola, and and then it happened. Um, I mean, it's a very politically unstable environment. There's been a lot of dissociation between um, the east of Congo and the capital in Kinshasa. Um, Congo, ever since it became independent as a country, the DRC has has never had a stable political environment. It's a country that has huge issues in terms of inequality, in terms of resources, in terms of the military, the role of the military, the role of international armed forces. And then all of these armed groups. And yes, there's in the North Kivu, there's there's more than 100 armed groups. And what people forget is they're not sort of living separately. They're within the population. They're within the society. Um, and so they're part of the population. And people, for various reasons, take up arms and, and join an armed group or, or have alliances with an armed group or are just too afraid to push back against an armed group. So so it's very difficult to understand who actually is, um, you know, on one side or another side or, or one other sides. Um, in eastern Congo. So then you have this outbreak of Ebola where people in this, this part of the world are extremely suspicious about everything mm. um, because it's been many years but they've, they've never really understood you know, who's going to come and help them, why do these things keep happening to them, they feel completely powerless and completely helpless and now there's this sort of invisible disease that they don't understand that they've never had before because it's never happened in this part of the Congo before and it's moving around and it, it's a very social... Um, disease and a political disease because in fact one of the most common ways that Ebola is transmitted is during the, the funeral process, during the point when people wash the bodies and pray over the bodies before burying them mm. um, and that's one of the main points where people contract Ebola and it passes between each other. So in fact it's a disease and the, the response to the disease tends to impact on, on societal structures, on their normal ways of doing things and that makes people extremely suspicious because you have outsiders these experts that arrive and, and tell them that they have to stop doing the things that they've been doing for generations and they have to do it differently. Um, and they, they don't really understand that. And it's it's quite normal they don't really understand that. MSF, the, the benefit that we have in this area is that we've worked in this area for a very, very long time. And the way we work in any area tends to be that we work with the local community, we work with the local people. Um, I don't know how many times I've kind of gone to a new place and, and yes, you have to do the, the basic formalities at capital level you have to meet um, the people that you have to meet to make sure they're aware that you're there and they're okay that you're going to wherever you're going. But the majority of my time spent in sort of negotiating access to places and discussing with people is actually on the ground and it's down to sort of the level of, of people in their homes, um, people who are visiting local health centres and local pharmacies. And it's only by really sort of 
speaking to them that you kind of understand your acceptance in that area. Are, are they willing for you to be there? Are they not willing for you to be there? Do they understand why you're there? And I think if you if you haven't made the effort to do that, if you're based in the capital, as, as some organisations are, and you're essentially just sending money to other people to do things, then you'll never really understand, you know, your level of acceptance in the area and whether you can explain to people what's going on and whether you can understand yourself what's going on. So I think it's really important for MSF to get down to that level of the population and understand, you know, do they do they know what's happening to them and do they have some sort of choice about what's happening to them? The other way that we really managed to um, operate in these areas is of course we talk to everybody. So we talk to the population, we talk to the armed groups, we talk to the militaries, we talk to the local leaders. But the majority of our staff, the majority of people who work for MSF are actually from from there. So over 90% of our staff come from the country in which we're working and generally in, from the community in which we're working. So we, we recruit an awful lot of people, local doctors, local nurses, the drivers, the watchmen. They come from that community and they're the people who really understand what's happening. And the benefit of us having worked in North Kivu for so long is that I have some extremely qualified, um, what we call national staff, but people who come from North Kivu who've lived in their communities their entire lives, they understand the point of view of, of the community, they understand the point of view of the population, uh, and they're willing to explain that to me, and they're also willing to represent MSF within their community. And sometimes that works, sometimes they just come back and say, no, whatever we're trying to do, it's never going to be acceptable to people, and, and either we take the risk of carrying on doing it anyway because we think it's the best thing to do, or we decide that it's too risky to try and do something and we leave and this is some of the discussions we had in Syria at various points of time and we sometimes have it in Congo as well is is that what what is the limit of, of our actions you know if a population such as this population affected by Ebola don't want us to be there don't want us to operate in their in their environment don't want us to interfere with their burial processes don't want to be vaccinated or do want to be vaccinated are we listening to them enough and do we have a sort of open exchange Change of discussion. It's a bit too easy to sort of arrive and just tell people, particularly in, in a, an emergency like an epidemic, it's a bit too easy to just arrive and tell people, you have to do this, this and this. Um, people don't like being told what to do, particularly by outsiders. And yeah. so it's better to spend a bit more time engaging in discussion and coming to a sort of deal with the community and the population. But they understand what we're doing to them and that they have managed to explain to us what they're willing to happen and what they're not willing to happen. And I think that's super important. Yeah, I mean, from everything that you've just said, I mean, integral to it is having sort of like the open communication with people like yourselves working uh, with MSF, with, you know, local actors. And I think often in the discussion, still in the mainstream, um, a lot of like the local actors, they're not as visible in the discussion. But I I do think that's definitely changing now. Yeah, and I think it's important to realise that that people who come from that community... um, but happen to be working for an organization, they can often be put at risk as well. I, I think, um, you know, sometimes what's dangerous for me is it's more dangerous for them. Sometimes it's easier for them because they come from there, yeah. maybe because they speak the local dialect or the local language, but sometimes it's actually more difficult for them. And so with local actors and, and some of the things that have changed, and particularly in development discussion, is the idea of enabling local actors. And that's fine, but it's also making sure that you're helping them 
and not just essentially offloading to them and saying, okay, go on and do your thing and we'll pay you money. Um, because sometimes, one, that doesn't work, and, and two, sometimes it's actually putting people at risk. So you, you have to be a bit kind of understanding of, of how you're really perceived and how your organization is perceived, but also just really what are you, what risks are people taking? And finally, what are your predictions on the future landscape of emergencies and how do we better mitigate for them? I mean, I think the future landscape of emergencies will carry on having emergencies. And I think the actual... The emergencies that we see, people keep saying it's getting worse and worse. Yeah. I actually think that often it's not necessarily getting worse and worse, but more there's more awareness of it at an international level, and there's more idea that that somehow we should intervene, that people should intervene, and that we don't just leave these things happen. I mean, I think the landscape of emergency, we will carry on seeing natural disasters, we will carry on seeing epidemics. Um, my concern about Ebola is that it's actually not a very contagious disease, and, and I see with the way we respond to Ebola that if we get a much more contagious disease we're probably going to be quite lost everyone's going to find it very difficult we're going to carry on seeing conflicts and I think you know maybe we'll see more technical conflicts with bigger bombs but we'll still carry and see the, the conflicts that we see in Africa which are you know armed groups attacking villages and face-to-face violence and I think all of those will will continue to happen so I think you know there's discussion about climate change whether that will increase the population displacement and it may well do but I think in the end the discussion is really what is the response how do we best how do we want to respond um, as humanitarian actors as development actors is there a better way of responding are we innovating enough and you know are we just naively thinking that there's somehow is going to be some magic utopia where all of this will end I don't I'm pessimistically think these situations these emergencies will carry on in the long term and I think the discussion needs to be how do we respond to them and at what level is it the sort of you know the days of the international NGOs or the UN is it more local level and they just need money and I think all of these discussions have to be had because we see again and again exactly the same scenario and in the east of Congo we've been seeing the same scenario for, for many years without Ebola but all the other problems in the east of Congo have happened over the last 20-30 years and will continue I think. Uh, Dr Natalie Roberts thank you so much. The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond.